DiscerningHearts.com presents Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. Dr. Reno is the editor at First Things, a journal of religion, culture, and public life. He has also served as a professor of theology at Creighton University. His theological work has been published in many academic journals. Essays and opinion pieces on religion, public life, contemporary culture, and current events have appeared in Commentary and The Washington Post. He's also the author of numerous books, including Fighting the Noonday Devil. This series explores numerous facets of faith and reason in the life of the church and the world. Grounded on the work of giants such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, Blessed John Newman, Blessed John Paul II, G.K. Chesterton, Blaise Pascal, and Stephen Barr, Dr. Reno helps us to open our minds to make the journey to our hearts. Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We're going to talk about a figure who is tremendous gravitas in the 19th century, just a tremendous influence on so many, but not many of us, I think, appreciate his life, his lifetime, and what it is exactly he contributed to the life of the church. Yes, um, John Henry Newman was a Englishman born um, in a kind of evangelical Anglican um, family, uh, and that means that he, evangelical doesn't have quite the same meaning as it does in our time, but it really meant a kind of Calvinistic um, environment that emphasized uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, for instance. And um, he went to Oxford University. In those days, you kind of went up to Oxford at age um, 16 or so. And he was a very bright young thing and was quickly identified as a, um, as a real talent. And then kept on a fellowship after his undergraduate studies to, to do further studies. And it was during that time, it was during these this period of time in his early, late teens, early 20s, that he began to... Uh, kind of feel called to um, uh, to ministry, um, and then became an ordained uh, Anglican uh, minister. And uh, it was during that time that his roommate and very close friend um, developed, uh, who had a more what a more Catholic kind of understanding of the Christian faith, kind of a small C Catholic, Harold mm-hmm. Harold Fr- uh, Froda, or Harold Frode, um, who was uh, quite a character. And I think a very extreme personality, uh, kind of an altar and throne, you know, aristocracy and uh, kind of a high church uh, view of, of the authority of the church and so on, which is a tradition in Anglicanism. And then uh, through friendships at Oxford, Newman eventually evolved into one of the leaders of what, what became called the Oxford Movement. Mm-hmm. And the Oxford Movement was an attempt by these Anglicans to try to recover uh, the fullness of the Catholic tradition for Anglicanism. Strong emphasis on the role of the sacraments in the spiritual life, um, high view of the authority of the bishop, uh, uh, a high, strong view of the, uh, the sacred, supernatural um, reality of the church over and against um, secular authority. And uh, they pursued this. It, was, it was, a, was quite a stir in English society and had a massive influence um, 
And so if anybody goes to uh, Anglican Church or an Episcopal Church and you see all of the religious art or if they you see the you know candlesticks on the altar, this is all after the Oxford Movement, stained glass windows, Gothic architecture. This is a consequence of the Oxford Movement for Protestant Christianity really broadly. The, the liturgical renewal in, in Protestantism has a lot to do with the Oxford Movement. But nonetheless, and while he was at Oxford, he became a teacher and also the pastor at the, basically the university church, uh, where he gave regular sermons that were very popular with the undergraduates. He was kind of seen as a sort of spiritually serious and severe man um, and attracted students uh, you know, who, were, who, were, who had these kind of deep religious questions to him, had a very strong following. But it was in the 1840s that he began to have doubts about the apostolic legitimacy of Protestantism more broadly. And he became then, he entered the Catholic Church in 1845 and then was eventually ordained as a priest in the Catholic Church and became a member of the uh, Oratory of St. Philip Neri and then was the head of their house uh, in uh, Liverpool, England until his death in in um, 1880-something. He lived to be 85, 86, 87 years old. So he, wow. his lifetime spanned really the entire uh, 19th century. So he was alive during the First Vatican Council and was made a cardinal shortly after the First Vatican Council. Many people might be surprised that the Oxford movement would have such an influence on liturgy. I think for many of us today, we would have thought that that would have been retained over the centuries. But because of the movements in the 16th, that's when a lot of that was taken out of the churches, and the emphasis on sermon was the primary focus in the Anglican Church. Yes, the general Protestant uh, trend was characteristic of Christianity in in, in England, and then when you add on top top of that, uh, the political tensions between the Catholic countries and England, uh, Spanish Armada, for instance, during Queen Elizabeth's reign, uh, the Guy Fawkes uh, uh, effort to blow up the Houses of Parliament, and uh, you know, forty years later, uh, anti-Catholicism was a very, very important part of uh, English culture, and it's one of the ways that they defined themselves. And so, the Oxford Movement really became was so controversial uh, because it it represented a much more sympathetic uh, attitude towards um, what we would think of as the sort of Catholic spiritual tradition. Uh, and I mean, and, and it was, it was a kind of an attempt to integrate that into Protestantism. Um, and uh, uh, Newman's, the point at which Newman kind of reached a crisis politically with respect to the Oxford movement, had to resign his his role, uh, was when he wrote a tract or a long kind of booklet explaining how the main confessional documents of Anglicanism were actually consistent with the teachings of the Council of Trent. Wow. And so that, that, it, it I mean, Protestantism doesn't make sense if there's nothing wrong with Catholicism. Because the whole idea that we're supposed to be one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the idea that there's an imperative to be one, that there can be no reason to to divide or to split other than a fundamental reason of of Christian teaching. And so so Newman's analysis threw that into doubt, whether there really was a fundamental divide between Mm -hmm. Anglicanism and Catholicism, and that was just, and that 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 was intolerable for the political and church authorities of the time, and uh, and as I said, that was in the midst of his own kind of personal crisis about whether or not he could um, 
really believe in the Protestant project. And so he, his life is very uh, interesting, uh, spiritually very dramatic. He had never been to a Catholic uh, worship service when he entered the church. Really? Uh, right. It was, uh, it was illegal to celebrate the Mass in public in England until the 1830s. Um, so there was no churches to go to in mm-hmm. Oxford. And the only way you could go to a mass would be go to a private mass that was being held by some uh, aristocracy that the small amount of the aristocracy that didn't convert uh, to Protestantism kind of held out. Um, but even when he when he when he made the transition in 1860, 1845, there just wasn't a lot of Catholicism on the ground, and it also made him a, uh, a compl- he was unable to continue at Oxford because in order to uh, be an undergraduate at Oxford, you had to be an Anglican, much less to be a teacher. And that continued until 1875, the requirement that you, uh, that you affirm the confessional documents of Anglicanism in order to matriculate as an undergraduate. I would imagine there were quite a few ripples from this baptism. And not just that, but also uh, in the wake of his uh, conversion, uh, a, a lot of his followers also did. Uh, and this created a great deal of anxiety in kind of upper-class English society that their, their Protestant character was under was under assault, and their national identity was under assault. So, you, mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it in our day, not in our day, but in the memory of many listeners, um, John Kennedy had to give a speech to reassure voters that he wouldn't be under the thumb of uh, the Pope. Mm-hmm. Eight, 1960, well, can you imagine what things were like in 1845 when those kinds of fears were much more vivid and powerful in people's minds? So yes, he was a... He was kind of expelled, if you will, from polite society in, in England. And, um, but then he eventually um, became a very popular and important literary figure. He was attacked in public in, in the 1860s and then wrote his apology for his own life, his apologia for his own life, which is a beautiful kind of spiritual autobiography that um, was very popular, uh, went through many printings. And then he also wrote um, a number of works in what you might think of as apologetics or uh, kind of at the borderland between philosophy and theology. He never wrote a book on theology. It's very interesting. And he certainly was a strong supporter of the infallibility of the magisterium. But he, for all kinds of reasons, he didn't think that it was wise to, to make a conciliar definition of it at that time. And I think that his style, when we get into it, we'll see, the listeners will see, he was a literary, had a certain way of thinking that was once both very literary and on the other hand very precise and technical. And it has many virtues, but it is not at all like the scholastic philosophy and theology that was so important in the church in the 19th century and in the early 20th century. So I think, by and large, Newman was was not digested by the church mm-hmm. or, or not received by the church in his own lifetime. I mean, he was recognized as a kind of a very uh, powerful intellect and I think respected by the, uh, the uh, um, uh, hierarchy in England and somewhat feared by the hierarchy, uh, by the Vatican authorities uh, because he was so um, eccentric. Mm-hmm. It's only been in the 20th century that his star has risen. He is a kind of, I would think of him as an anticipatory thinker rather than a characteristic thinker of his own day. He seems to anticipate the way that the church began to think about things in the 20th century 
And he anticipates the church in two important ways. First, Newman has a very important book on the development of doctrine. And he recognized that the historical changes uh, in the life of the church change the way the church thinks about the faith, thinks mm-hmm. about the key teachings of the faith. And at the same time, he recognized that the, that faith doesn't change, because if it did, then presumably we wouldn't be able to trust uh, the teachings uh, of the church, or somehow it would disappear simply by the passage of time, these truths. And so he articulated an idea of organic uh, growth and development that uh, has become uh, really wi- universally accepted, really, by, uh, by the church as a way of understanding its own development uh, through time. Um, so he sees a kind of deepening process, uh, an extension process through time. And it's an organic uh, metaphor, which is, um, which is very, very uh, not common in the kind of scholastic world. And the second area where I think he anticipates is that he, he had a kind of skeptical temper and that means that he saw the limits of reason and argument and so on. And as a result, he didn't throw his weight behind a strong tendency in the 19th century, which was to insist upon the fundamental convergence of philosophy and uh, theology. And he developed a much more nuanced uh, understanding of their inner relationship that has turned out to be actually, I think, more widely accepted after the Second Vatican Council. So some people have said that Newman was the kind of grandfather of the Second Vatican Council. Mm. People have described him. So you, you have many of the important figures before the council uh, um, who testified, theologians, you know, who were the kind of young Turks who were so influential at the council, who in their memoirs um, will, will indicate their discovery of Newman as young um, seminarians and the excitement of, of reading him. We'll return in just a moment to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. A teaching of St. Paul from his letter to the Philippians. I even consider everything as loss because of the supreme good of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have accepted the loss of all things, and I consider them so much rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, depending on faith to know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is Chris McGregor. The work of discerning hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Please consider making a tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. Litany of Humility O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being 
humiliated. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being despised. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of suffering rebukes. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being calumniated. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being forgotten. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being ridiculed. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being wronged. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being suspected. Deliver me, Jesus, that others may be loved more than I, that others may be esteemed more than I, that in the opinion of the world others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I unnoticed, that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. And not only in theology, but also in literature and so many other areas, those speak of the influence of the work of Cardinal Newman on them. And I'm thinking of J.R.R. Tolkien and also uh, Heller Belloc and a number of others who have cited him as a, a great influence in their own thinking. He did write hymns and he wrote... Uh he wrote poetry, and um, he was a kind of English intellectual of his of his era. Uh, and and as I mentioned, he has a literary quality to his um, to his to his imagination. He identified in his um, in his youth uh, the influences of uh, of William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And when I first read that, I was very struck by that because Newman is a great proponent of the necessity of authority in um, human life. That if we're left to our own devices, we will make a mess out of our lives. Um, you know, St. Augustine once asked in his confessions, what am I but a guide to my own self-destruction? And, um, and Newman was very much uh, uh, a person who felt that, that we left to our own devices, we, we will really make our lives worse, not better. And so he saw the need for divine revelation and authority and the authority of the church for, for the proper functioning of reason itself. Um, and so you look at Wordsworth and, and to a lesser extent college, but certainly Wordsworth, and you think, my goodness. I mean, he's a kind of a prophet for inward introspection 
you know, mm-hmm. finding God in yourself kind of thing. I couldn't understand it. But then I realized what Newman saw in Wordsworth and other figures was a resistance to the kind of mechanization, reduction, enlightenment reduction of human life to kind of mechanical reason. As if we could somehow, I don't know, calculate our way out of the problem of problems of human life. A kind of false view of progress. These are, these are these kind of dogmas that are coming into the university system and is his lifetime that he very much resisted. And he saw in the Romantic poets uh, kindred souls who thought life was much more complicated than what Jeremy Bentham thought it was like with his utilitarian calculus, the greatest good or the greatest number. Um, we, I mean, these are these things haven't changed, you know. We have plenty of people who think that if we just have the right technology, all of our problems are going to go away or... You know, Peter Singer at Princeton, if we just reorient our moral thought towards the problem, you know, problem of pain and sense, you know, sensations of pain, we can solve all of our moral problems and so on and so forth. I think it's still with us to this day. And that's, made, I think, what makes him so relevant uh, to us as contemporary readers, not just as, and this is why his influence is broader than Christian readers. He's really one of, uh, he's a reader that, that many kind of secular figures in English literary culture have grappled with because he's not easily reducible to a kind of science versus religion or a kind of reason versus faith or a kind of authority versus freedom kind of scheme. Much more subtle view uh, of these things. And I think when we see that today, I think John Paul II also uh, had an influence on on non-believers because he didn't fit those standard categories that everybody kind of, you know, our, our, our educational institutions want to train us to think, well, it's, oh, you're either thinking for yourself or you're, you're um, a slave to somebody else's opinions. You know, these kind of easy dichotomies. You're either progressively minded or you're a reactionary. Uh, you're either, you know, committed to uh, all these sort of, you know, cutting edge moral uh, changes or you're, you know, you're a cruel, you know, uh, reactionary. And so I think that that Newman's very interesting and important in that regard as well. It's interesting that you would show it really in the 19th century. There was this lifting up of the dichotomies between things. I mean, whether you have Karl Marx purporting the man is part of the worker, is a part of the big mechanism that's moving everything forward, Darwin's thoughts, it even went down to eugenics. Even Arianism was coming forward. I mean, it was just so many different things. A lot of pressure on, a lot of pressure on um, culture at that point. And it really comes out in his own life. In his own life, his his younger brother Francis Newman lost his faith and became a was also a very gifted writer and became an important literary figure um, and a spokesman for uh, unbelief. Uh, not 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 in the Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins dismissive mode, but nonetheless, it was a kind of, you know, uh, reflective, but at the end of the day, classical Christianity is no longer believable in a scientific culture. That's his, that's his younger brother's view. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, it's kind of powerful, you know, when you think about it uh, existentially, that the family divides on, on these deep questions that you pointed out. You know, are we, are we best understood as natural animals by the sciences? Or is there something more about the human condition that 
makes the, our kind of theological way of thinking about our lives uh, ultimately the most important. Um, and I think that, would, I mean, certainly those questions are, are obviously still with us. We're running close to the end of this segment, and in future sessions we're going to be talking about his university sermons and essentially his teachings on faith and reason and, and how to reconcile the two and how we can implement that, given the light of not only his culture, but which seems to be ever-present today, the same tensions. Isn't that remarkable that we haven't changed that much in how many years? Well, there's two ideas I always want to sort of convey to to my students, one is that is that uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, and that's true across the board. I mean, you read Aristotle or Plato, and you do. I mean, there's important differences, and you got to be sensitive to that. But the human condition is a, a powerful source of continuity in people's uh, insights into into life. Uh, but at the level of culture and at the level of history, I mean, clearly the great, as you pointed out, some of the great benchmarks of modern culture are occurring during his early life or have already occurred. French Revolution, obviously, massive uh, transformation in the political culture. Um, You pointed out Darwin, which is fairly late in the game, but there's already at Oxford and Cambridge uh, geological study that's throwing into doubt uh, the book of Genesis' account of creation. So those are already happening in the centuries when he's a young man. Um, So you have the science and religion issue, you have the kind of an issue of political authority, um, and then you also have these kinds of transformations in spiritual life uh, as well. I mean, like I said, the Romantic movement is actually kind of conservative in a paradoxical way because it's saying that the Enlightenment culture is too narrowly rationalistic. And so it seems to tap in, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an approach to the spiritual life that's much more inwardly turned and much more me-oriented and my experience-oriented. And so that kind of throws into doubt the kind of traditional forms of piety that are much more outwardly directed, you know, mm-hmm. much more obedience-directed rather than inner discernment-directed. And so we, I, think we, I think we have all those issues still with us, all three of them, question of political authority, question of science and religion, also this question of, of where, where, where is God sort of most richly present within my experience or or outwardly in, in the sacramental life of the church or in the authority of the church or, or, if, or Protestant in, 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 the, in the inspired text of the Bible. Any final thoughts on Newman? Well, we look at these university sermons. They're, they're not courses. So it's kind of interesting. He didn't really give courses. That's not the Oxford method of instruction. Instead, they are they're sermons in a context of worship service. They're long. He had some respect for the attention span of <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but they really are kind of quasi-lectures that he's giving to uh, students and faculty came as well to this university church. And uh, so I, I think that um, it's, a, it's a good illustration of what I find most admirable about Newman, which is that it's, it exemplifies it, right? Because the pulpit is, in, in, a, in a way, is, a, is, a, is, a, is at the center of kind of the life of, of piety and prayer, but he's using it also as a lectern, lecture hall. So he's an amazing ability to combine kind of intellectual subtlety, rigor, and depth with spiritual seriousness of purpose that I find very admirable, very remarkable. I look forward to entering into those sermons with you, Professor Reno. 
You've been listening to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. R. Reno.